Hello, hello, and thank you ten times over for tuning in to the 29th edition of Scoring at the Movies, the bi-monthly podcast that gazes at sporty flicker shows, usually from the days when we were young and impressionable. Caution, there will be spoiling. I'm the mid-40s baseball player who needs 16 years to recover from a gunshot wound, Ryan Ellis. And here's the guy who can literally knock the cover off the ball. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Chris DiGregorio. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. I do appreciate the pump up there, but that was a bit of a, and now my good friend, Mr. Black, <laughs> kind of moment just then. And it also stole a little bit of my thunder because I had a whole bit about running into a, a slightly agitated looking woman out front of your place on the way in who asked me about you and me just describing you as the best there is, the best there was, and the best the there ever best will be. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. <laughs> That's right. You know, I had a whole bit lined up about that in relation to you and podcasting and how she walked off crossing Mark Marin's name off a list and muttering your name <laughs> in its place or something like that. But never mind, we'll move on from that. <laughs> In any event, given that we were just talking before we started recording about how bloody hot it's gotten here, finally. Cause Last it, time you were here, I was talking about hopefully we'd be in shorts. Well, we are, and we I'm are. also sweating. I also made the mistake of playing basketball before you got here and doing a little yard work on the hottest day of the year. Raptors mania, I guess. You yeah. know, I said in the podcast we did maybe two months ago, whatever it was, the basketball podcast, what was it semi-pro? We did something in basketball. No, Space Jam. Space Jam. The Raptors, I thought, were going to lose to the Bucks. They beat the Bucks, and of course they won the championship. And now I finally say this in late June recording this in late June. In the words of Emperor Palpatine, I find your lack of faith disturbing, Ryan. I gotta believe summer is not only here in terms of the date, but it's actually here in weather. So it feels only, shall we say, natural that we talk about baseball now. Definitely, we're going to release this just after the All-Star break. So it'll be mid-July by the time this comes out. But we are recording this just before Canada Day and, of course, the American Fourth of July. Well, they, everyone has a Fourth of July, the Independence Day. So my lobbing the whole natural thing out at you went uncommented upon, eh? Yes, it did. I'm trying to play off the name of the movie. God damn it. Da -da. All right, that's it. I'm cracking my beer. I'm just yep. getting straight into it. I was just going to say you better do that. Yeah. What are you drinking there? So this is Rally Cap. Rally well, you know you are. The best there is, I wonder how many times we're going to hear that little drop. Brett, the hitman hard. And this movie is where he got that expression because that is what Roy Hobb says. He wanted to be the yeah. best there ever was. He didn't quite say what Brett Hart always did as his catchphrase, but that's where Brett got it from. But no, he got it from the Whammer. Barbara Hershey's character in this movie asks the reporter played by... Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall, thank you. I should remember it. <sighs> yeah. Take your breath. And she asks, is the Whammer truly the... Of course, the Whammer being the Babe Ruth mm -hmm. analog for this. The best there is, and his response was... Oh, his response. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. <laughs> he gave it a little less zazz than that in true Robert Duvall fashion, but that's exactly the line. So that's where Bret Hart got it from. Ted Williams also had the same feeling. He wanted to be the best that ever played the game, the best anyone ever saw, at least the best hitter. I don't think he cared so much about being a good defender or base runner, which he wasn't. He was probably the best pure hitter that ever played the game, though. Yeah, I was going to say, he might have accomplished that, at least in one aspect of the game. I mean, at least he's in the argument with some of the greats. Yeah. You could make an argument probably for Barry Bonds and... 
a few others down the line. Or certainly, Bonds is the best all-around player that may have ever played the game. He's up there with Mays and Mantle's younger days and Trout now as well. Yeah. But Williams wasn't a great all-around player. But pure hitter? I think Tony Gwynn's in that conversation, and Ted Williams would have told you that himself. If you yeah. looked online, YouTube clips, Williams was a big fan of Tony Gwynn. Yeah, Tony Gwynn might be in that conversation as well. And one of the things that always fascinated me about Ted Williams is you look at baseball in 2019, and I could probably ramble on for an hour, an hour and a half, just about the state of the game versus the state of the game 10, 15, 25, in the case of this movie, 80 years ago. But Ted Williams was truly a man ahead of his time because 2019 baseball is all about effectively a two outcome at bat, right? Usually it's strikeout or home run. That's what you're going for. Or three of the walk is another one. I don't even know if the walk is a desired outcome in terms of what hitters are trying to accomplish at the plate. I think the era of guys trying to draw the walk or be on base percentage specialists might be a little bit of a bygone... Well, Harper and Trout, two of the great power hitters of the modern era, both walk a lot. They do, but they're just great hitters, right? You don't have a lot of these little slap hitters trying to get on base at a 400 clip so that they can steal bases. Ichiro, like, yeah. That kind of player doesn't really exist so much anymore. But in Ted Williams' era, he was a big proponent, and this came out later. I think he released a book shortly after he retired about the art of hitting, and he talked about launch angle and stuff like oh, really? that. 60 years ago. I never heard of that until a few years ago. I don't remember yeah. ever hearing somebody say that word until maybe two years ago. You never heard about it, but his theories and thoughts on hitting were contrary to a lot of what had until very recently become accepted truths about hitting, right? About trying to hit down on the ball a little bit and to hit those line drives, the gappers, right? Make pure contact, but not necessarily go for the launched hit. Ted Williams was the opposite. I think 1939 was actually his rookie season. 80 years ago, and as one of the best hitters that game has ever seen, he was a man way ahead of his time. You look at Roy Hobbs in this movie, he's going pure launch angle all the time. Every at-bat, he's up there swinging and corkscrewing mm. himself into the ground. There's that, something online about how his numbers for that year were pretty good overall. I'll have to look for the link to it, but anyway. Roy Hobbs' had, numbers? Yeah, yeah. He didn't play the whole season, of course, because the season had already started. But still, his numbers were outstanding. I don't know how they knew this, but anyway, maybe this is just what they put in the screenplay and somebody got a hold of that and said, well, this is what his numbers would have been projected out to a full year. And then, of course, his manager, Wilford Brimley, who's very good in this movie, I think, he is. said, you're the best goddamn hitter I ever saw, which is also what Ted Williams wanted. People to yeah. say, that's the best anyone ever saw. Well, that's what Williams wanted, and that's what Roy Hobbs wants. Yeah. You say this movie was set in 1939, and yes. that's right, which makes it 80 years, and the movie was released 35 years ago. So a lot of anniversaries here. 1984. It came out in May. That was the 11th of May. And it was a pretty good success that year. It was 14th at the 1984 U.S. box office. Ghostbusters was number two. Bev and I covered that. You and I covered Karate Kid, which was number five. Bev and I covered Splash a while ago, number 10. And Amadeus, Bev and I covered years ago, was 12th. A lot of big hits in 1984. That was a good year at the movies, actually. You could just cover 1984 for a few months. And we've already done all of those, Bev and I and you and I. But if we hadn't, you could have a plethora. And there's still more that neither of us have covered. You, me, Bev, or any. The Terminator, we didn't cover that one. And Beverly Hills Cop. And this was well-regarded, this movie, The Natural. 82% of critics liked it. 7.14 out of 10, which is pretty solid. And 88% of audiences. Also, we talked about numbers. This surprised me. Robert Redford, of course, is the star as Roy Hobbs. It's one of 18 Redford films that have made $100 million adjusted for inflation. Who would have thought Robert Redford, who doesn't make that many movies, would have almost 20? And two more of his movies are right on the cusp with $99 million adjusted for inflation. Yeah, well, he's such a heartthrob, Ryan. You just that can't, is you can't hold him down. And he's been in two of the biggest movies ever, The Sting. Well, maybe Butch Cassidy is quite in that level, but The Sting is one of the biggest hits that's ever been made, yeah. adjusted for inflation. I love The Sting. 
the conceit of this when we talked about doing it originally was let's talk about movies that we have some fondness for maybe when we were younger or whatever the case may be and that becomes harder to do as we move through the catalog because you run out of those kinds of movies or better I already covered them you did mention this one when you first talked about doing this podcast last yeah. year I mentioned it because it's such an iconic movie in so mm. many ways I could probably just off the top of my head think of three big scenes that just are etched in culture from this period of time and have been lampooned or otherwise referenced innumerable times since this movie came what out what would they be well, I'm thinking specifically of the thunderbolt splitting the tree and then the carving of the bat scene, hitting the home run that obviously wins oh, yeah. the playoff game, that sparks showering down on Redford and him circling the It's bases. one of the great movie scenes ever. Yeah. I have some issues with this movie, and we're going to talk about this as oh, we go through. will we ever. <laughs> and I was surprised I didn't like it more, because I always thought of this as one of my favorite baseball movies, and it's still quite good, but if I were to write a written review, I'd probably be... Barely, or there you go, Rotten Tomatoes, better example. I'd probably barely be in the fresh category. But then that last sequence is up there with some of the great scenes yeah. that have ever been made. Movie magic, pure and simple. In my opinion, should have ended the movie. That should have been the last scene. Well, of the, the last shot suggests that he goes on to have this normal life with his old lost love, Iris. But then it also could be suggested that he's dead. Yes. Because he looks like he's going to die. And also, this has got to be asked. I think people have talked about it with this movie. It's one of those that posits was the whole thing. Certainly his baseball career, at least maybe not the entire movie from start to finish, but was his entire baseball career just a fantasy. He did get killed by that woman, the crazy fan, and then he imagines. Now, why would he imagine it to be this hard? Why would he imagine that people are trying to screw over his own team, his own owner, yeah. wants his team to fail, like Rachel in Major League? Exact same plan, although, well, then again, she wanted to move to Florida. He just wanted to move. He just wants to muscle out pop. And if they lose then that happens. And I didn't know this was a theory out there. It makes perfect sense that it would be. But it is exactly what came to my mind. When the movie ended, my initial reaction, and just to finish my prior thought, forget about the iconic scenes, but this movie is one that I have memories of because of those scenes. But What it, was the third one? I don't think I could let you say the third one. The home run off the clock face that shatters the face and all that kind of stuff. That's part of the same scene at the end. No, it's a different home run. He's in Chicago, I think, right? Yes. That's okay, right. right. Also tearing the cover off the ball, that whole scene. I had forgotten about that. And oh, really? Good God, I could have done without that scene. I hated the corniness of that so much. Because it's not possible. <laughs> and I get that later on, they go, oh, just faulty ball. But if you hit a ball, and the cover literally came off it, and the outfielder picked it up, and you're just chugging around the bases, do you really think the game would continue? No. I can't imagine. It would have been a considered a ball at a play, I'm sure. Maybe a ground rule double. But they... Ground rule double would be fair. Yeah. yeah. Split the difference. Split the difference. So I don't think he's holding up a ball of yarn and saying, ump, what the hell am I supposed to do mm -hmm. with this? And they're like, well, I guess he just gets a home run now. It was a triple, actually. He got the third, he slid into third and got a triple. And by the way, if you didn't notice this, I think what's also a little bit more irrational for the whole scene is that it gets so wet so fast. Oh, it yeah. isn't even raining when he gets to bat, and by the time he slides into third, it is a pool of water. Yeah, there is no drainage on that field at all. It is sopping wet. Well, because I watched some clips from There Will Be Blood last night, I'm going to move back here and say, Drainage! <laughs> no drainage! <laughs> I love when he says that in that milkshake scene at the end of the movie, and there will be blood. But yeah, that scene is absurd in many ways, but it's also movie magic. Maybe not as effective as what happens at the end, which is pure movie magic. But in both scenes, you get the lightning strike up in the air, and then, of course, the storm happens. It doesn't rain at the end, though, does it? But it's, it's lightning it's, at the end is lightning well, that actually starts a rainstorm in the middle. It's raining sparks. Which is irrational, but I buy that, because by that point, the movie has become pure fable and fantasy. Yeah. I think where I disagree with you is that scene actually actively took me out of... The middle one. The middle one. One the, in the, Chicago the, digging. Yeah, okay. like the hit the cover off the ball moment took me out of the movie just with the unreality of it all. And it's also because it was so on the nose and so in your face the way they did it. Because the guy actually says to him as he's walking up the bat, 
hit the cover off the ball, Roy. Right. And then he literally does it. And you're thinking, oh, come on. Originally, my thought is, you got to be joking. This is like something out of a cartoon. You hit the ball so hard. Bugs Bunny would do that. And then later they go on to say, well, it's a defective ball. And that's why it happened. And you're thinking, all right, whatever. But it was just so silly. It took me out of it. But I realized in watching this that I don't think I've ever sat down from start to finish and watched this as a whole movie. I think I've seen clips of it online, obviously, and I've seen bits and pieces of it over the years as it's aired on television. And taken as a whole, I had a lot of difficulties with it. As soon as it ended, my initial thought was, what? <laughs> That's how it ends? And okay, hold on a second. As a narrative of a man's life... It's a bookend, too, because we see him playing catch in a field of weed, I guess it is, with yeah. his father when he's the boy, and now he's playing catch with his own son. He didn't yeah. even know existed until the day of the last game. Yes, it's a bookend. As this man's narrative through the whole movie, it made no sense for this movie that it'd play out this way, unless this is his fantasy. And I thought, okay, well, maybe he didn't die, but maybe he's in critical condition in a hospital, and he's like a fever dream coma, and that's why it's such a weird, wacky, dream-like presentation of a narrative. Because you have a man who's the new hot 48-year-old rookie that... Uh, 35. Well, no, I mean, when he's first found as what would have been, I think, probably a 19-year-old kid, like in the yeah. early 20s, the whole scene with the whammer and all that. I think he was meant to be 19 yes. at that stage. Robert Redford never looked even close to 19. Oh, even when God. Robert Redford was 19, as great-looking as he always was, he didn't look 19. Yeah, so at that point, he's meant to be 19, and he's 48, I think, when they filmed this movie. So he gets shot. You skip ahead 16 years... And inexplicably, he decides to make another run at baseball. At still with the bullet in him. Still with the bullet in him. Which finally starts to rip apart his insides. Uh, I don't know how he lived all that time. They actively make points of asking him about his past. Why in the holy hell did it take you 16 years? And okay, there's comments while well, he played semi-pro and he's just coming back to it now. This movie was based off loosely. Based on a book that was inspired by an actual baseball player that was shot by a deranged fan. Yeah, the guy's name was Eddie Whitekiss or Waitkiss? Yeah. So Wait, W-A-I-T-K-U-S was his name, yeah. Yeah, and he wasn't a pitcher. He was, I think, a first baseman that played for the Cubs and then the Phillies. And the woman that shot him was an obsessed fan, but she was obsessed with him for a long time before she met him and shot him. And it wasn't a one-day thing. No, it wasn't like, <laughs> or oh, two or whatever it is. you tell me he's the best, eh? Well, bang. I'll make sure that won't happen. Yeah, is he just really trying to root for the whammer? You can't beat the whammer. Well, he did beat the whammer, but yeah. maybe the story won't get out. Although, Max Mercy's the kind of guy that would have put that story out there. And Max Mercy's apparently been carrying around a cartoon sketch of that for incident a decade for and 16 half. years. Yeah. She should have shot Max Mercy, too, because he's the real problem. He's the publicist, or he would have been, and he wants to be Roy's publicist later on in the yeah. film, but Roy keeps pushing him away. And if you're Max, how do you not publish that story? Surely the whole shooting suicide story of what happened to Roy in the hotel room when he goes to visit this deranged fan, you know, she shoots him and jumps out the window, apparently, and commits suicide. That's got to be out there in the news, right? And Max, as a newsman, meets this incredible rookie who just vanishes off the face of the earth. You would think he would put two and two together and release this incredible story about this prodigy pitcher. He's also a tabloid reporter. Yes. Don't forget that, too. He's got the story. He struck out the whammer. He's this incredible young prospect who got shot and is now off the face of the earth. How did that story never come out? How do you make that jump from 16 years? Because Eddie Whitekiss got shot, nearly died, but came back a year later and played ball again. Okay, really? And he had a further career for like another 10 years. Well, good for him. Redford and I take 16 years to recover from bullet wounds. <laughs> and then it takes us out. So you were just sitting at home for 16 years going... Harumph. One <laughs> my belly hurties. My belly. <laughs> hey, Doc, I've got this crippling belly pain where I got shot. Ah, don't worry about it. I'm sure it's fine. The book, by the way, because as you said, was based on a book, Bernard Malamud. And the book was darker than this is. This is dark in a way, though, because there's so much gambling stuff. It's the Shoeless Joe thing. There's a lot of real life stuff. Babe yeah. Ruth. Not just the whammer, but Roy himself is a pitcher that became a right fielder who was great at both. 
He never really got a chance to pitch where anyone important saw him because he never played the major leagues that way. And that actually leads to one moment in the whole movie where he does pitch with a major league team. Hey, Roy, throw it in there. I want to hit one. He blows the guy away. Everyone's, oh, my God. But they would have been seeing him throw from right field for months. They know he's got an incredible arm. He's dogging it in right field for the entire season, just, <laughs> just lobbing it. If you were writing a screenplay based on this book and you wanted it to be loosely like the natural that exists, right? You've got young Roy, young 48-year-old Roy. Quote, unquote, young. Yes. Can't have a set of quotation marks large enough for that. Yeah. And you've got him as the hot young prospect who comes up and wows everybody with his arm. And then he gets hurt. And then comes back as a right fielder Mm -hmm. with an incredible bat. And you're thinking, okay, well, what was all that nonsense with pitching and striking out the whammer and showing off his pitching ability and all that? And then he shows up in that scene, the batting practice scene, where he throws one fastball so fast that it not only gets past the batter, but like breaks the fencing behind the batter. Oh, okay, here we go. He's going to have to now pitch in a critical game for this team unexpectedly. And it never happens. What the hell was the point of that scene, showing off his arm? Except maybe, like you said, just to show how badly he's been dogging it defensively in right field all this time. (laughs) I don't know. Well, we know he's a great pitcher. They don't need to know. This doesn't, like you say, mean anything unless he does pitch for them. And we don't think he ever does. He never does. never portrayed in the film. What in the holy hell was the point of that scene? The number of times that was my reaction to specific scenes throughout this movie was, what was that meant to accomplish? And at the end of all of it, I was asking myself, what is this movie trying to be? Because it reminded me a little bit about Field of Dreams, the father figure that dies. And unlike Field of Dreams, he obviously has a good relationship with his father, but a father that died too young. And the connection he has with him is baseball. And he's trying Mm -hmm. to sort of rekindle that past relationship he had with his father through baseball. It's also a Superman arc, by the way. The father dies, the kid feels a little bit guilty, although that's more of an issue in Superman that he feels guilty. All these powers, and I couldn't save him. Well, he should feel guilty. He didn't really try to save him. He just ran out there and held them. I'm like, for God's sakes, man, call for help. Get a doctor in here or something. I get it's 1923, but call for your mother. Don't just hold the man. He's having a heart attack. But as far as the Superman arc thing goes, both Roy and Clark go to the big city, Metropolis, which is New York City, effectively, and then Roy ends up in New York City playing for the Knights. And he was going to have a tryout with the Cubs with Chicago. That's right. It's not funny, so it's not a comedy. It makes no efforts no. to be funny at any point. Well, I mean, there's a few... Redford actually is a good actor as he always was. Is pretty humorless in this. Oh, he's because not only humorless. is he too old, and I wouldn't say he's bad. I don't know if he was ever bad in any film. He's one of those actors that just seems very comfortable with his own skin and very believable. But he's miscast. Not a bad performance, but not the right performance. Not the right yeah. actor for it. Not just because he was mid forties, like you say, he's older than I am now. His performance is fine. He plays the good-natured, country, bumpkin-y type of guy that I assume he's going for. He doesn't seem like a bumpkin at all, though. I disagree with that. He comes across very bumpkin-y. He comes across somewhat streetwise when he's trying to be bought off and people are trying to scam him like the I bet I can tell you within a buck. Yeah, right. For $100, I can tell you what's in your pocket right now. Like $100 now, that would be like $1,500, $2,000. And he sees that bet coming and then does like the whole sly oh, I lost the bet. Oh, well, wait. And then pulls the two silver dollars from behind Kim Basinger's ear and I think you missed this, Mr. Gus. And ends up winning the bet, let's call it even. So in some very specific ways, you see the 16 years that have passed and how that's made him somewhat streetwise. But at heart, he's still like a freaking bumpkin. When Glenn Close's character comes up to him in Chicago, tracks him down, I have a son and that's his glove. And, you know... He likes baseball. Yeah, he likes baseball. His dad lives in New York. Your semen worked once because we did it before he went to Chicago for your tryout. And And obviously it worked because I got pregnant. She didn't say that, but, you know, she's thinking Yeah, And he's just got this blank look on his face. And then he leaves. It's like, well, sorry I couldn't meet your boy. See ya. It doesn't click in that this is his son. Or at least if it does, Redford does not play it that way. You know what this reminds me of is Forrest Gump. 
when Forrest at the end meets young Forrest, people yeah. have talked about how emotional and wonderful that scene is where Forrest goes, is he small or is he like me? That is a believable way of meeting a kid you didn't know existed. Roy is not as mentally challenged as Forrest always was. But I don't think Redford plays the dunceness the way that Tom Hanks did in oh, Forrest no, no. Gump. When I say country bumpkin, I don't mean like Forrest Gump, not handicapped in any way. I just mean that he's... But I don't think he's even playing the bumpkin thing right. He's not naive. Because Redford didn't really ever play naive. He's not one of those actors that can do that very well. I struggled with his performance because at times he is savvy enough to see through what would otherwise catch, like you said, a naive bumpkin mm -hmm. by surprise. But other times he's just so clueless and so willing to accept what's going on around him. He plays good-natured fine, but man, as a leathery 48-year-old man who's meant to be like a 35-year-old rookie, it just does not look right. His last chance he should be, even though he's an older guy now, grinning all the time that I'm here at all and getting paid pretty good money. And by the way, a scout signs him. But then the whole storyline ends up being that the judge wants the team to lose so he can buy out Pop or get rid of Pop, and then he owns the team outright and makes more money that way, I guess. Doesn't have to deal with Pop. Pop doesn't know about this when Roy gets there, so he had nothing to do with that. Okay, so the scout found him. But then that means the judge signed him. If you want to lose, why are you signing somebody who is this older but quote-unquote young phenom? Why are you adding anybody with any talent whatsoever yeah. to a team that looks like they never touched a baseball in their lives before? They're awful, then when Roy comes in, they're great. Then he starts sucking, and they're awful again, the exact same way, making dumb... We've seen dumb errors. You look at highlight films, you'll see the Major League players now make really bad errors. But this is a collection of comically stupid errors in a movie that isn't funny. No, exactly. But that's the kind of thing that could be funny. And then, of course, they're great again. So they're awful, they're great, they're awful, they're great. It was Benny Hill-esque, those early error sequences that you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As they're running yeah. into each other in the right. field. Like, whoop, 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 and whoop. Michael Madsen, we learned later on, was being bought off. He was trying to lose. That makes some sense then. But then I don't know if he's one of the ones that makes some of the stupider errors. So the judge didn't buy off all the players to lose like this. No. He bought off Bump, and then he tries to buy off Roy. And then also the pitcher, Fowler, who in the big game, by the way, for a guy who's trying to lose, pitches a beautiful game. He <laughs> two runs. Yeah, two runs on three hits or something like that. And keep it in this mode. We talked before about Major League and what Rachel tries to do, lose also. Yeah. The final score in both games is 3-2, the natural and in Major League, and of course the climactic game. And it's also one on a walk-off in the bottom of the ninth. One with a bunt that drives in a run, and this one with a three-run homer. I think we talked about when we did Major League about how that owner trying to lose subplot played a little bit false for a number of reasons and probably wasn't even really necessary to the overall arc of the movie. You could have had the same movie just as successful without that character. Although you do have the great scene where you have the Rachel cut out with the little mm -hmm. pieces of clothing that the guys take off every time they win. Oh, she adds a lot to the very end. When Wild Thing comes out to the Wild Thing song, I hate that this fucking song. That's a great scene. <laughs> but I felt the same way about the judge in this. At times, it's almost nonsensical. Why would you bring in good players? Even if you think, okay, well, it's a 35-year-old rookie. How good can he really be? Why would you bring in anybody? But the scout would be telling him, this guy's got yeah. some talent. Maybe the judge didn't know. Maybe it was somebody else. Like, he just had carte blanche before this whole arrangement between Pop and the judge. The little bet that the that scout can actually literally put him on the team. And I guess. That seems odd, know. but maybe you're right. The judge character, the only point that man played in this movie was to try to buy off Roy at the end of the movie just to prove, yet again, Roy is a good guy. Roy is a good baseball player. He's got integrity. Roy has gone through tragedy and is coming back. Oh, but now Roy has this other life-altering decision to make in the form of $20,000 being thrown at him if he throws a game. And, oh, but look, he refused it. So he's an even better guy. Like this movie does so often, it felt like one step too many 
that overcomplicated the movie in mm. unnecessary ways. And this is a fairly long movie. Oh, yeah, and it felt long. It feels long. It's two hours and almost 20 minutes, and it felt like it was about three hours And long. there's not a lot of plot. It's introduction, shooting, he turns back up 16 years later, meeting of the minds, banging of heads with Pop until he convinces them yeah. that, oh, let me play... He's great. And then he's great. Then he starts banging Kim Basinger and he's not great. Yeah, and then that's when the whole team okay. starts sucking. Hey, what do you think the message was there? Women weaken legs. <laughs> Rock. <laughs> but then when he gets back with Iris, he doesn't sleep with her, presumably. But when he sees her again, you're right. I forgot. He hits the clock in Chicago in the middle of the movie, probably literally the middle of the movie. That great Halo shot, one of the most beautiful shots anyone's ever put in a movie. Caleb Deschanel, the cinematographer, and Randy Newman, the composer, who did one of the more famous music themes. Maybe not the whole score, but the da da Da, 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 da. And then Deschanel's cinematography are both outstanding and deserve to be praised up and down. With okay. a shot of Iris, he sees her. He probably shouldn't see her, but okay, fine. It's, again, the fable. <laughs> and then he hits this massive home run that breaks the clock in Chicago, yeah. but during the day, not the end sequence. That is a good shot, and that is one of the three that I referenced. But I did love the cinematography of that scene and the sound. And now he's cured. How would you classify that shot from the perspective of cinematography? Would you say it is the best there was? The best there ever will be. The best yeah. there was, and the best there ever will be. <laughs> we haven't referenced that drop for yeah, it was like four times. Five, I five minutes, <laughs> so I thought we should get that back in there. I guess that shot was the real sun coming through as well. It wasn't some kind of lighting trick. Well, it's a lighting trick, but not lights. It was actually the sun. They waited till a certain perfect moment to get that. Exactly. So you get almost this magic hour type thing coming through her hat. And it's silly, but a lot of movies are silly, but it's certainly beautiful at the same time. I can only imagine this movie was going for a Kim Basinger is representative of sin, temptation. She's the nice femme fatale, though, because she's actually caring. She doesn't twist her... At at the end, when Roy is clearly not on their side, and the judge and Gus are disgusted by the fact that Roy is trying to win, and now Fowler, the pitcher, doesn't seem like he's going to throw the game after all. She's the one that seems sad. It's almost like, oh, I messed up. Why did I get in with these guys? And of course, she's also Pop's niece, which is strange. And he even tells Roy at one point, don't mess with her. She's a problem. Your own niece, but he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not but wrong. But she is not evil. And Kim Basinger in her best movies, LA Confidential, Bev and I covered that a few years ago, won the Oscar for that, Supporting Actress Oscar. She is a hooker with a heart of gold and one of the best examples of that because she's a very nice person and a caring person, even though she could very easily be, well, she's involved in a setup, actually, and that's a very convoluted movie. But she does toe the line of being a bad girl, or could have, except basically her plays are nicer than that. Of course, people know her from Batman and Nine and a Half Weeks. This was the era of her being A, beautiful, and B, bit of bad girl roles. I don't think she plays it as a bad girl. She doesn't play it as bad, per se. She just plays it very mercenary. And she tells Roy as much. I'm not waiting for true love. I've been with a lot of guys. And she's clearly... She was with Bump. She might have been with any number of guys. Oh, right? probably was, yeah. There's all the questions of Bump. We hear you're going to get engaged with Memo. And it's like, whoa, no, no, don't believe anything you hear kind of stuff. So it's not that she was bad, just that she didn't really care about anybody, right? And I felt like she was more caring than you're saying she was. Yeah, I Although maybe that's... Barry Levinson, in his second movie ever, he had done Diner, which a lot of people love, a comedy. Complete opposite of this as far as the tone. It's just this loose, easygoing, I think largely improvised as well. Or at least if it wasn't improvised, it was more loose than this is. And then this is his second movie. Very accomplished, technically. And a lot of people do love it. It was a hit. The critics liked it. But then he goes on to do Rain Man and Wag the Dog. That was many years later for Wag the Dog. Bev and I covered those two films. He's made some excellent movies, but this is actually the example of Barry Levinson. Rob Reiner's another one that in the 80s, it seemed like it was nothing but good stuff or at least hits, whether you like them or not. Hmm. And then he ends up sucking in the more modern era, Reiner and Levinson. (laughs) But this is a good example of a movie with some brilliant things in it, but then some things, we've already covered a lot of them, that don't work at all. And maybe it's because he was still such a young director. He'd been writing for a while, 
but maybe the problem is his. Although it could be the book. Maybe Malaman's book isn't that great. I've never read it. Maybe the writers didn't adapt it very well. There's the King Arthur myth going on here. And apparently Sir Percival, I don't know anything about that. Yeah. We know about King Arthur, of course. Wonder Boy is Excalibur, effectively. Although the Savoy special ends up being... And here's, by the way, my nutshell after all this time. Man constantly brags about his bat. But a bat he made for a kid is clearly better. Because yeah. that's the one that destroys the lights. Not only does he, well, he breaks a clock in the middle of the game, he breaks the lights at the very end of the game. And even though he boned... <laughs> I boned it so it wouldn't chip. And that's Wonder Boy. And yeah. he lasts all through the year. The Savoy special that he helped Bobby make is even better. Now, how many bats do you see baseball players go through... In a game. Could be they're made worse now than they were then. It's possible. But they're not. They are singular pieces of wood that are machined down to the shape that they become. I don't think pitchers necessarily sawed guys off the same way. I don't know. It's hard to say. You're right, though. You don't, you don't have... use one bat a whole year. That's definitely true. Never mind 16 years, and he wasn't playing professional ball, but he was playing ball because that's where the scout found him, and presumably he was using Wonder Boy whenever he played baseball mm -hmm. anywhere, so not a bloody nick on it because he boned it. Yeah. Like, what that even means, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. The symbology of the lightning bolt and the rain and all of that that plays throughout the whole movie. Well, the bat's special because of the lightning bolt, yeah, because it made the whole tree special. He should have made many bats out of it and given every one of his teammates. So aside from the cute symbology of the lightning bolt and how it becomes an emblem for the team and their success later on, the mythology of the bat and how it's special, does that make it a more effective movie or a less effective movie? The message is then, well, it's not really the man doing this. He's not necessarily so talented himself. He's just got this mystical bat. No, I can defeat that by saying the Savoy special. He hits the ball even further with Bobby's bat. My nutshell, man, a few minutes yeah. ago. No, okay. I so he's special. He happens to have this great bat, but I guess the message is that he didn't need the bat. It was him all along. Yeah, okay, fair enough. King Arthur wouldn't have needed Excalibur because he was special to begin with, but he had Excalibur, so why wouldn't he use Excalibur? By the way, I keep saying the Savoy special. Annie Savoy is the name of Susan Sarandon's character in Bull Durham. And I think the Savoy special is actually a brand of beer I read. Somewhere. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, since or it would movies. have been contemporaneously to 1939. Oh, it actually was. You don't it mean, actually it, was. It wasn't somebody basing it on this movie. No, no, no. Okay. It actually was. So, oh, I, one thing again about Wonder Boy, though, the bad he has through most of the movie. Baseball players don't fuck with a guy's bat that's in a case who's also a rookie, even if he's mid-30s and older than probably all of them, they don't prank him. Are you kidding me? Oh, I know. The portrayal of the sport in this movie. Some of it's good, some of it's really not good. That's one of the things that doesn't make any sense at all, because baseball players would absolutely be pranking him. They maybe wouldn't have ruined the bat on him or stolen it, but they would have played around in some kind of way. A rookie with a bat in a case? <laughs> the portrayal of baseball players was really entertaining to me. You talked about Bump. He, His comically stupid death? That was so emblematic about what made me angry about this movie. The hyperbolic nature of a lot of the scenes in this movie. So Bump is nominally the star on this team. Yep. Maybe this is the basis for him going hard after this ball is because earlier in the movie there's a scene where he dogs it and drops the ball. And we later find out that was probably on purpose because he was on the take from the judge, mm -hmm. right? But he goes back to the dugout and this is when Roy gets his first at bat because Pop gets pissed off and says, you're out, Roy, you're at bat, go up there. And Michael Madsen's character just sort of what do you want from me? What do you want? You want an apology? Says it no. four times. <laughs> yeah. I ain't doing it. Okay, well, then sit down. Well, you want an apology? No. You want an apology? No. <laughs> How about now? <laughs> you still want one? Well, too bad. <laughs> okay, that was pretty funny. And then this is the guy that runs to the wall? Yeah, exactly. And then he literally runs to the wall. Roy, okay. Yeah. I can see Roy run through the wall. <laughs> yeah. 
Why? He Why? goes through the wall in slow motion, and that makes it look even worse because I'm not going to fault the stuntman in 1984. You can't use visual effects <laughs> and that kind of thing. Digital effects. But it doesn't look like he would even get hurt from the way he goes through the wall. Maybe banged up. Maybe a concussion. But die from that? And then as soon as he goes through the wall and you see the other outfielders waving for help, cut, a hard cut, the newspaper that says, dies in an accident. It isn't supposed to be funny. That actually was. It actually was. You couldn't just have him dislocate a shoulder and be out for the year. You had to have him die. It was freaking hilarious. It's a common transition that they use in this movie, so throw up the newspaper headlines. Yeah, But they made no effort to have the article under the headline correspond with the headline itself. They clearly wiped out an existing headline from an old paper and put in the new one. That's typical for movies, but okay. But it was so distracting because all of the article was very clearly legible. And every time it flashed up, it would be like, nights win eighth in a row. And then below, president wants to preserve the sport bass industry in the United States. like, (laughs) what? I think I read somewhere when Stanley Kubrick ever had newspaper headlines, including, I believe, in Eyes Wide Shut. That if you look closely, it's what it should be. Yeah. And that, that's Kubrick for you, though. That is detailed and good filmmaking. The first time I noticed that was maybe the second time the newspaper came up. And then every time thereafter, I paused the movie and then actively read the article that was okay. below the headline just because I was curious now. Put in your own text. It wouldn't take that long to have somebody I guess write joke. up something that actually applies to Bump or whoever else the article was about. I know. I found it really silly. Speaking of newspapers, and of course, that's Max Mercy. Sorry, Ryan, small cans today. So it's going to pour the second one. I'm drinking water instantly because I need to hydrate after my gardening and basketballing. Is it possible this whole movie is just a story written by Max? Is that why it's so sensationalized and that's why it's so extreme and unbelievable? Also, you mentioned before Barbara Hershey seems like she dived out the window, although it says she's shot, but she just disappears and the window's open. So I didn't actually read it that she dove out the window because more than once in this movie, somebody's in a shot and it cuts to somebody else and it cuts back and they're just not there anymore. I think about three times that happens where somebody's not there playing up the idea that this isn't real, including when Roy gets on the train. It never stops. He's waiting for the train. It doesn't stop. And then as it wipes past the camera, Redford's not there anymore. He probably just went off set. I don't think he jumped on a moving train as slow as moving as it was. Maybe Redford did. But who would do that in reality? So it's almost like Hmm. the beginning of the movie is saying, this isn't real, and here's a subtle way of showing that. But Harriet, Barbara Hershey's character, just disappears. And I think the judge does. Somebody else, more than once in this movie that happens, where somebody's not in a reaction shot where normally they would be. Yeah. It's almost like it's magically they're going away, but they have no reason to. Although you're right, she could have dived out the window. I Do- dove out the window. I like that even more than the fever dream or something. Is this just a story by Max? The only reason I say she committed suicide is because later on when the judge is trying to blackmail Roy when he's not playing ball and the judge pulls out the photos that he got of the crime scene, you have a picture of Roy lying there after being shot. Which, incidentally, was also kind of funny to me. A man has been shot, is clearly injured, but alive, and some photographer took the time, rather than assist him or get him to a hospital, easy, let's take the photo (laughs) here, like, come on, we just got to frame it correctly, snap, okay, one more, and the guy's bleeding out on the floor. And that's the old thing where they have the flashbulb thing that goes off. Yeah, so it wasn't fast, it wasn't like you just snap, snap, okay, let's go. Well, that also could be the crime photographer, couldn't it? Yeah, it could be. But he's but, not dead, so... But he's not dead, so why aren't you getting this man to a hospital? Why are you taking pictures of him lying on the ground in a pool of blood? He has a picture of Roy in that pose, and then he has a picture of Harriet lying on what looked to be a sidewalk yeah. in a puddle of blood. So the open window, her on the puddle of blood, I took it that she shot Roy and then committed suicide. I think they said she was shot, though, didn't they? No, she... Shot she, herself? There was a shooting, which oh, okay. I took to mean Roy, right? She died after shooting him. Which I also found interesting. You have Max talking to somebody on the train when Roy first shows up as a young man. The scout that found Roy? Yeah, it is with the scout that found Roy. And he's talking, he's reading the newspaper, and he says somebody shot another top athlete with a silver bullet. Obviously, it's a reference to Harriet. She's done this before. 
And I think, if anything, that lends credence to him making up a third incident, or if not making up a third incident, maybe Roy did get shot, and maybe he died, or maybe he disappeared, and this is Max remembering this crazy rookie, this crazy good rookie, I should say, that got shot as a tabloid journalist. How do I turn that into a sensational story in 1939? Well, I'll link this other mystery rookie to this guy and build out a narrative. So I'll cast a movie star to play the main character. Yeah, so maybe you're right. Maybe it is just his tabloid story about it. Maybe that's why there's so much unreality to aspects of this movie. I didn't think we covered Robert Duvall in two sports movies in, what is this, our 29th now? And yeah, we have. And the other one wasn't that long ago, Days of Thunder. Yeah. We said he was very good in that. We said he was actually excellent in that movie. I did like him a lot. This movie, I don't think he really stood out the way that Duvall often does. He was in six AFI movies Bev and I covered. And of course, Days of Thunder with you and I. Maybe Bev and I have covered him in something else I can't even think of. But but we're getting close to ten movies we've seen him in. And this is the most forgettable he's been. Yeah, he didn't have a lot going on in this movie. I definitely like Wilford Brimley and Richard Farnsworth as the manager and, I guess, assistant manager way more. Let's talk about Wilford Brimley a little bit, because I agree with you. I thought he was probably the best part about this movie as far as a performance goes. I knew Redford was miscast in this movie. I knew he was 48 because I looked it up. I had to know how old he was. I knew he was nowhere close to his mid-30s. I had to know exactly his age. So he was 48 when this movie came out, maybe 47 when he was filming it. Brimley's only two years older I know. than Wet Redford. He looks like he's about 20 years older. I feel like Wilford... And Redford Brim- doesn't look young. Yeah, Wilford Brimley is maybe my spirit animal because he might have been an old man when he was 40 years old. I like to think I don't look as old as Wilford Brimley you does. You also don't have the diabetes. And you don't pimp out Quaker Oats. That's true. And I- you also weren't in The Thing. And Bev and I are going to cover him in a movie where he's also very good next week. He's in The China Syndrome, which we're going to cover. And he's very good in that as well. He's a really good actor. And I enjoyed his character a lot. I thought he was a very believable, cantankerous, and in the same way that... Okay, you're going to have to help me with this, though. The manager in Major League. James Garman's the manager. Pisses on contracts. That's a hell of an idea when guys want to bunt in the ninth inning. Wilford Brimley was not as gravelly or cantankerous as that character was. Similar. He's kind of over this team. He understands how bad they really are, and he's just throwing out random comments. Like, the first time we see him, the pitcher can't throw a strike, and he's just wandering up and down the base pads like, don't be scared of throwing a strike out there, buddy. And this is the other thing, though. Pop and the judge had apparently, before the season started, made this little wager between themselves that if they won the pennant, Pop was going to be able to buy out the judge. But if they didn't win the pennant, then the judge could buy out Pop. What a gamble for Pop to make when he knew this team wasn't very good. How good do you think the Knights were in 1938? Do you think they were a half decent Obviously not very good. (laughs) Maybe Bump was trying. Maybe Bump was a terrific player who was trying before and isn't now. But again, one guy can't make this much of a difference in a baseball team. No. Basketball, yeah, Michael Jordan or that kind of guy can change an entire team. Football, arguably the quarterback. But in baseball, I don't think one guy can make this much difference. If that was the case, Barry Bonds in 2002 when the Giants played the Angels and the Angels won the World Series. The Giants may not have been the better team, but that's one of the best playoffs any player's ever had. Barry Bonds put that team on his back, and they still didn't win. Yeah. This notion of a single baseball player, at least for the purposes of a movie, carrying a team to victory, that team that isn't good and making them a championship contender... It can work, but it has to work in the context that Major League did it, in that you have a new group of players that come together, and they struggle at first because we've all seen rookies or we've all seen new teammates come together and not be able to really gel, and so they Mm. suck for a while. And in the case of Major League, they're both misfits and also an entirely new squad of players that haven't played together for the most part before. So you buy them sucking, and you can buy them turning it around because they find reasons to come together and they find reasons to gel. In this case, you get the impression that it's an existing team that is just bad. The comments throughout the movie about some of these players really seem to imply as much. Like, oh, this guy's finally figured out, or something's wrong with him. He's hitting the ball. Yeah, that's a good line. 
I mean, okay, it's a good line, but it implies that this guy has been a nothing player in the past. And I did enjoy the fact that in 1939, they effectively have a sports psychologist reading to them about how losing is a disease. Right. Okay, that's a cute message. You and, are all good players. Yeah, in the you most... will all give 110%. That's not possible. Yeah. 100% is the most anyone can give. Like the bubonic plague, losing is a disease that is contagious. <laughs> I love the droning, boring nature and repetitive nature of his sermons before Redford walks out. I get that losing can sap the will from a team mm -hmm. and that winning can be contagious and it can really inspire players to play a little bit harder because now they're having a little bit more fun. But if Roy is a fun guy, if he's... Well, Roy is not a fun guy, exactly, but, but the players point. might be having more fun winning than losing. As good a player as he is, he can help them in a big way. But he can't control pitching because he never pitches. He can't control the at-bats he doesn't have. He can't control when the yeah. ball's not hit to him. So even if he is the best player in the world, it doesn't make that much of a difference unless everything happens to go exactly right. So, okay, then you can say behind the scenes. And I think that the modern guys here hung up on things like war and a lot of the other baseball numbers. They're the ones that'll say character doesn't matter or it's all yeah. about winning. Have you ever been on a team before? Somebody can ruin it and somebody can make it better. If Roy was that guy bringing a team together that way, then maybe I can understand him being also good in the field and then great in the locker room. And when they win the game that puts him in a position to in that one-game playoff, which, by the way, back then should have been a two to three, not a one-game playoff. I was reading that online. If the standings were tied at the should end. Should have been a two or a three. Really? Yeah, that's what I was reading. So yeah. then you see Roy and everyone else having drinks and they're all having fun together. But he's mostly hanging out with Bobby still. By the way, one of the other things about this movie that doesn't make sense in the is it portrayed very well? A, that they know Bobby's name because you hear it at the end. Roy kneels down next to the Bat Boy, Bobby Savoy. <laughs> he wouldn't know his name. And he also wouldn't be on the road with them in the games where he does go on the road. Bat Boys don't go on the road. But did they then? Maybe. I, I chalked so. it up to maybe being a thing from the 30s that doesn't happen anymore. They wouldn't pay for him. you got to pay for a hotel room for a kid. He also should be in school through big parts of the season. Of course. Till the end of June and then through September. Yeah. I also agree that character does matter and that if you have a dysfunctional clubhouse, dysfunctional relationship in your team unit, it'll affect your But Roy is standoffish. She's not making the much, no, that much of a difference with that. And that's why I say in the context of a movie like Major League, that turnaround worked for me. They set up the circumstances to make it at least believable might be a stretch. You'll buy it for the sake of the movie. Jake brings them together. Yeah. Tom Berenger. In this case, you're right. The circumstances aren't there. It doesn't make sense. He is not that galvanizing figure. He's a great player, mm -hmm. but didn't but he is. really play. Thank you, Ryan. I've been missing that for a little while now. Uh, oh, man, that threw me off for a second now. Well, while you're thrown off, I'll get through a few more numbers I didn't talk about already. The movie did get four Oscar nominations. Supporting actress for Glenn Close. This was the decade of Glenn Close. She was excellent in a lot of movies. I think she was nominated for three straight. The World According to Garp, The Big Show, which I just watched recently again, and I always loved that movie, and I liked her even more watching it this time than in this one. And then other movies in the 80s, she was outstanding all through that. And then The Wife last year, she was great in that. Was she worthy of a nomination for this? Yeah, that was going to be I don't question. know. It's one of those movies that's a pretty good hit. You might say, well, let's reward the entire cast by representing her. That's often happened, where I don't know if people necessarily think that way, but that's how you can take it. If that person does win the award, you know they're going to go up there and say, I thank Bob, and I thank the other Bob, and I thank Kim and Wilford <laughs> for all being good in this film. Does she stand up compared to everyone else? Like we said, the best thing is probably Brimley. I think she's yes. pretty good. She's also too old for this role, incidentally. They both look like they're people in their early 40s or whatever age she was in the sequence when he is 19 and she's probably the same age or maybe a little bit younger even. I think on all counts, you're right. You anticipated my question and answered it as I would too. But this is the other game I was playing with myself while I was watching this movie, particularly when you see 1939 Roy on the team. And Redford is a man that in some respects is younger than his years, as far as his appearance goes. 
Really? Maybe this is more true when he got to his late 50s and late 60s. He retained a certain amount of youth about himself. But there is a big difference. And I hate to say this as a guy that's approaching 40 myself, but there's scenes in the locker room, right? And he's undressing after the game or something. And he's in great shape for this movie. Mm -hmm. But he looks every year the 48. There's a leatheriness about him that does not look like a mid-30s. Hair everywhere. Burt Reynolds-esque. Yes, he was a hairy man. I'm jealous. This is why I say I would have loved to have known the story of Robert Redford being cast in this role because he doesn't really fit the description of the character. If you looked at the character and looked at Robert Redford circa 1984, it doesn't fit. So maybe he championed this movie's production, but he wanted to be in this role and that was the only way they could get it made. I was thinking of guys like Harrison Ford, who's a little bit younger, and I could see him playing the same kind of low-key, mumbly... He, by the way, is also about 40-ish at this point. He was born in 1942, I think, so... Yeah, he wouldn't have been 35, but he would have been a little bit younger. And you look at Han Solo circa Return of the Jedi, and I could believe that being closer. Tom Cruise would have been too young. Way too young. Way too young. I struggled to come up with names. Maybe Tom Berenger as an option for this. He was an up-and-comer at this point, too, and had been in the big chill before this. Quite good in that, yeah. And, of course, you throw these names out, and you don't know what goes into Maybe they're not interested in the script. Maybe they have other They want the movie star, and he was a huge star. Who's a name circa mid-'80s that you think might have been suitable for this role? I wouldn't have thought of Ford, but you've convinced me that that's probably the best choice. But then everybody wanted Harrison Ford for everything at that point. Yeah, of course. And I think this was maybe the first or second movie that this company ever made, this production company. TriStar? TriStar. So they might not have had the clout... To grab anybody they wanted. And I don't know. Levinson was making his second movie, so he didn't have a lot of clout either. Right. I didn't finish, by the way, the bona fides with the Oscars and the oh, AFI yeah, stuff. There's that. quite a bit. So the supporting actress, Deschanel Cinematography, which arguably should have won. The sets, okay, fine. And then music score by Randy Newman. Again, much like Jaws, people have said that Jaws' score is overrated. I don't agree. I think a lot of the music in that beyond the is really good. But you talk about the main theme. Jaws, Star Wars, The Natural, name another 20. But I would put The Natural in there. Da 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 which you hear in baseball parks on a regular basis. That is such an iconic score. And then it was nominated for the top 25 scores. Top 50 heroes, Roy. Not really a hero, but then okay, fine. The AFI's top 100 cheers. It's the most inspiring. The ending, at least, I guess I buy that. I and this makes sense. The top 100 genres in the sports category. <laughs> okay. Well, nominated. Yeah, all right. Didn't fair. make it, did not make it. That's fair. Nominated, at least. I agree with you. The music's great. The cinematography's fairly solid. I think they did do a good job of filming this in ballparks that fit the era. You believe that these are 1930s-era ballparks, right? Apparently it was shot in Buffalo. A lot of it. It's yeah. not all of it was shot in a park. It doesn't exist anymore, though. They it, tore it down. Okay. They tore it down about 25, 30 years ago. Um, not too long after this was filmed, actually. What did you think of the ending, by the way? I already said that I think it's movie magic and that sequence alone. Although you can watch it on YouTube and enjoy it just as much. You don't have to spend over two hours to get there. Yeah. But do you agree that when he goes up to bat, he's bleeding out the side. You okay, fella? Let's play ball. And then hitting the ball in the way that all that plays out. Breaking that one bank of lights. But then yeah. there's no light in the whole stadium, basically. But that's just the movie effect for you. Yeah. Which, again, plays in the fact that this isn't real. But even if it is real... Do you agree that that stuff at least pays off? I know you said you didn't like the last few seconds, because it is only seconds where you see Iris watching Roy throw the ball with his kid. Yes. But forget that part. So do you buy into the moment where Roy wins the game? Rewind to the point where he's in the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Maternity ward, in fact. Okay, that I also love, because he collapses at an event. Get him to an emergency room, and the closest hospital emergency that they could take him to, I guess that could accept him, was a maternity hospital, specifically. They only do birthing at this place. The breastfeeding there is. Yeah. The breastfeeding there was. <laughs> the breastfeeding there ever will be. <laughs> well done, sir. You've got him there. You've stabilized him. He's effectively just resting now. In fact, he leaves at one point. He leaves and goes and they hit some balls at the park. One at the Robert Duvall character specifically who's watching him in the stands. His aim is incredible. Yeah. And then he comes back. In that number of days that he's just resting at the hospital, they couldn't move him to a nearby place that wasn't specifically in the maternity yeah. ward because he's just hanging out with all these breastfeeding and mothers. pro athletes get what they want when it comes to medical stuff. Look yeah. at MRIs. You'll hear about a guy will ruin his knee in a game. And then he had an MRI that night or the next day. The rest of us wait months to get... I've never had to, but the rest of us wait months to get an MRI. And baseball players, athletes, whatever, get them done within hours. Granted, it's way different now, but I agree. Mm -hmm. Like They would have put him somewhere a little bit more suitable, Mm -hmm. at least once he was stabilized. He's in this hospital. He's told, all right, you got shot at some point, and there's a silver bullet that's been in your stomach for 16 years. Which they've now dug out. Well, they pumped his stomach or something, they said. And this is one of the things that came out. The doc says to him, at any point, if you exert yourself, your stomach could explode, (laughs) which is the weirdest diagnosis I've Mm. ever heard in a movie. That could be a play of the King Arthur Percival thing I mentioned before, because otherwise, that's just stupid. It is unbelievable. And if he is really alive and he's going to go on to have this life with Iris and the kid, don't ever do anything then. Because baseball, yeah, yeah, it's an exertion kind of thing. But if he's going to be a farmer now, there's a lot of things he can do that are way more dangerous than playing baseball. Of all the things you could do that overexert yourself, I don't think baseball would make my top ten. Football, of course. Of course. Boxing, but probably not baseball. They have to play three more games. And incidentally, that celebration scene when the Knights tie Pittsburgh, I guess it must have been, for the... Because they play Pittsburgh in the big game. Yeah, for first place, for the pennant. You think, holy shit, they tied them. And then they're celebrating, they're smoking cigars, they're drinking beer. Wilford Brimley comes in and says, stop celebrating, you ain't won nothing yet, we still have to get the playoff. And there's thinking, three more regular season yeah, games. <laughs> and then you hear that on the radio later, wait, there's three more games? Again, they in don't the understand baseball yeah. in some ways in this movie. In other ways they do, but in that way they didn't. And of course they lose all three games because Roy's hospitalized at this point and can't play, and I guess they're demoralized. Incidentally, they lose those three games against the Philadelphia Phillies, who in 1939 were the worst team in baseball. Oh, okay, yeah. Pittsburgh was also a very bad team in 1939. Hmm. Made me wonder. They have all these real teams that are referenced. But they make up the New York Knights. They make up the New York Knights. Because it would be the New York Giants. They're a National League team. Were they that hell-bent on setting it in New York and the New York franchises wouldn't give them authorization? Maybe that's what it was. I didn't read anything like that, but yeah. that's very possible. So We talk about the Pirates versus the Knights, by the way, so yeah. effectively the Giants. But a New York team, so we'll say the Yankees then. So Pirates-Yankees in this one-game playoff. So maybe they're basing this on reality because it's a 1984 movie. But in 1960, the World Series, one of the most famous moments, along with Joe Carter's walk-off home run the Blue Jays had in 1993, Bill Mazeroski's walk-off home run in 1960. Hmm. But the Pirates won that with a game-winning home run, unlike the Knights slash Yankees, whatever, in this one. And, of course, you also have to think about the Kirk Gibson thing. He's in really bad physical shape, walk-off home run that no one could ever have expected. It's one of my favorite moments of baseball history. I've watched that so many times on YouTube. And that was Gibson's one and only at-bat in the entire World Series. In 1939, the New York Yankees won the World Series. They were still dominant. A four-game sweep of Cincinnati, I think, in 1939. And they did it in seven combined hours. All four games. That was less time than, was it the 20... One of the Boston Red Sox recent runs in the World Series where they played an 18-inning game. I saw that game, was yeah. longer as a single game than yeah. 1939. That was extra innings, but yeah. I saw more than half of that game at work, and I missed what would have been almost all of it if it had just been a nine-inning game. Yeah, I got to crazy. work, and I turned it on there. And went through about half of my shift. It went until about three in the morning or something. Can you imagine how badly you beat down a team to win four games in less than seven combined hours? Mm -hmm. Considering that a baseball game, however fast you play it, 
is almost impossible to complete in less than like two and a half hours now. Mm. The 1939 Yankees were one of the best teams of all time. Yep. Yeah, so Roy's hurt, can't play those last three games. He's told if he plays again, he might die. He does play. He goes out and he plays this game and he strikes out. Two times, I think? Three times? I think the other thing that's wrong about this movie, they, didn't they say it's his third at-bat in the ninth inning? That's not possible to have your third at-bat in the ninth inning if you're the top of the order. The bottom of the yeah, order, yeah. Where does he bat? He bats third. So it should be his fourth at-bat, because they do have a couple of hits at that point, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't have been possible. He struck out every time at-bat. The actual moment itself, the shot of the sparks falling, him slow motion running the bases, it's a great shot, regardless of how I feel about how we got there. You can't help but feel a little bit moved by that. But everything else didn't make a lot of sense to me. If you wanted that gut-wrenching moment of success and sacrifice on Roy's part, I think you either had to have him die, and maybe that is implied in that final scene. Maybe that is him in heaven having a catch with his son. Maybe. I wrote a short story, incidentally, where a guy was hit in the head with the bases loaded and drove on the winning run. (laughs) The Simpsons stole it years later. I'm serious, though. Mine was a drama. The guy was this great player who was an alcoholic. And then he couldn't play, and he finally gets convinced to play. And in the bottom of the ninth, he goes up there, and you think, you get a grand slam home run. I was, what, 16 years old when I wrote this? You think, of course the kid's going to go down that road. But instead I had it, he gets hit in the head and drives in the run that way. And then that happened to Homer in the yeah. Simpsons at one point. <laughs> Except Homer didn't die, but mm-hmm. same idea. And my guy did die. Yeah. That night he died in the hospital. So much gravitas, Ryan. So to do it more effectively, you either have him die... He makes a good catch in the outfield, otherwise strikes out. You've got Max drawing cartoons of him being a goat, which incidentally apparently didn't mean greatest of all time in 1939. (laughs) It it was a derogatory (laughs) thing. So a literal cartoon of him as a goat striking out and costing his team the game, even though he was the only reason the team got there in the first place. Right, yeah, how is he the goat? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think more effectively what you do is if you're going to have him survive, or you just cut it off, have the home run and him rounding the bases... Or don't have the shot of the blood on his stomach and him bending over in pain all the time because that's never really paid off. He must be bleeding a lot too because he's wearing a pretty loose He's wearing an wool jersey. Yeah, and still the outside of his uniform is bloody. Yeah, it's soaked with blood, so he's bleeding a lot. And why is he bleeding? He has a wound. Yeah, right. It's scar tissue from 16 years his ago. His stomach is a problem, but not his yeah. outside. Is his whole abdomen just rotting away? <laughs> the blood didn't make sense. How did he live for 16 years Exactly. Like this? Or, I think most effectively, if he's in that dire a circumstance, you give him exactly what you described when you talked about Kirk Gibson. He doesn't play, he's on the bench, he's shown up, but he's not playing, and then he tells Pop, put me in. I got one good swing at me, which I got is one good what swing. Kirk Gibson said at the time of the sort. Yeah, I got one good swing at me, and he hits the home run, and then he rounds the bases, and then, mm. end of movie. He knows about the kid because Glenn Close somehow has gotten word through the security guard who won't do it for her, but then, all right, fine. No, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, please. No, please. Who are no, you? I don't please. know who you are. Okay. You tell me you know the guy. A lot of people say that. Yeah. And is Glenn Close trying to help him out? This is the pinnacle of his season He just right needs now. to know this right now. He does not look good up there. He looks a little distracted, out of sorts. I'll distract him I'm further. Gonna, I'm going to tell him he has a son that he doesn't know about. He's like, well, what? Let's well, distract him <laughs> even more. <laughs> I am laser focused now. Thank you. That apparently is exactly how the guy that actually got shot by the deranged fan, that is exactly what happened to him. She got a note to him in the clubhouse to say, you don't know me, but come to this hotel room. And for some reason he did. Uh, And she shot him. But then he didn't bang Glenn Close when they were 19 and get a kid out of it. That's true. It didn't say, you have a kid you don't know about, come to this hotel room right now. (laughs) And then he had a fantastic at bat and then went to the hotel room. (laughs) This is for my unnamed child. (laughs) The child I never knew. 
One guy I like in this movie, too, we talked about Brimley and Farnsworth, who's so naturalistic as well. Darren McGavin, who's uncredited in this, but he was wonderful the year before in A Christmas Story. He's the dad in that. And I think he's really good as Gus. So you got the older yeah. guys who no, stand out. Not that Redford's not older as well. And not so much Duval either, who certainly is older. But Brimley, Robert Prosky, who's the judge, who has a great line in Broadcast News when William Hurt says something about how I think we'll be okay. And it cuts to Prosky in the control room and he says, Who cares what you think? Which I wish to God people in the media would listen to now. Because so many of them, <laughs> even the real journalists, think it's about what I think. Let's have a story. Anyway, I've talked about that a lot in other podcasts. I think McGavin's pretty good in the film. I think he stands yeah. out as well. His character's a little goofy, but for what it is, he does a pretty good job with mm -hmm. it, sure. I don't know the actor's name, but the assistant coach to Pop. Richard Farnsworth, yeah. Farnsworth, yeah, yeah. As the kind of learned old man that's been around the game forever and is just sort of the steadying force and the voice of reason. He does a really good job with that role. The one person on the whole team that Roy hangs out with and goes to dinner with yeah. is him. It's not even yeah. one of the teammates. Although, what you could argue they do that other times. I guess they probably Later do. on, they invite Roy out to dinner. Only after he proves himself to be a really good hitter. Oh, that's typical, though. That's what I'm saying. They should be initiating him by messing with his bat. They should be initiating him somehow. Like, Even just taking away from him and him losing his mind, because that's what you want to do, is you want to drive the kid crazy, and then, oh, here it is after all. There was a scene where he leaves the bat case open, and he walks away, and they focus on the bat case, and I thought, this is when they're going to show somebody taking the bat, and that'll be a moment of tension, and I don't know if they replace it with, like, a foot-long hot dog or something. I thought for sure there was going to be a scene of that hazing, and it never mm. showed up. I don't know why. There's a lot of missed opportunities and scenes where they tried to see something that just wasn't logically there for them mm -hmm. to grasp, as far as the screenwriters go. Well, the screenwriters were Roger Town, not Robert Town, but Roger Town, and Phil Dusenberry. So maybe they messed up Malamud's book, or maybe Malamud's book wasn't that good. I don't know. I've never read it, so how can I say? If you've learned anything from modern media, Ryan, it's that your lack of knowledge of something should never stop That's you so from, true. from judging it. That's so absolutely true. I want your snap judgment of Robert Robert Malamud's book? Bernard. Bernard Malamud's Benny, book. Benny, Bernie. Right now. Give me your two-second review. If this is fairly close to what no, the no. book was. No, no. Unqualified. Ryan's uneducated reviews. New segment. Younger Ryan would have enjoyed it. Older Ryan doesn't enjoy it so much. All right, there we go. Because I used to love this movie. It was one of my favorite baseball movies. And now I wouldn't put it in my top ten. There are a ton of baseball movies, so that's also a fair point to make, is that you talk about Field of Dreams, Major League is certainly in there, and on and on. We've covered some already. Mr. Baseball, which isn't in there, but we've covered I think We've done, what, five baseball movies now out of our yeah. not even quite 30 total podcasts? Well, there's a lot of them out there. I think baseball is an accessible sport. There's going to be at least another eight or nine that we could definitely cover that we haven't oh, done yet. easily, yeah. And we will do more probably before the year's over. I think I have a new recurring segment in mind now. It'll just be Ryan's uneducated reviews, and I'll just ask <laughs> you questions about things of which you have no knowledge <laughs> and right. demand a brief and immediate review. What about scoring? Can you score at this movie? Well, you got Basinger. Barbara Hershey looked pretty good at that point still. Redford, he's dreamy, so it should only take about 30 <laughs> minutes to make you feel all funny. <laughs> Even Glenn Close is looking all right. But especially uh, Basinger. What about you? Can you score? I don't know, man. I see Robert Redford as a 35-year-old man, and I have a grim vision of my impending morality. Not morality. Later on, I have a grim vision of mm -hmm. my own morality when he can't hit a ball because of his liaison with Kim Basinger. But knowing that both Robert Redford and Wilford Brimley are the same age, effectively, and anyway, we're very close. Yeah. Such a mindfuck, for lack of a better word. That might that be the most telling thing in all my research in this movie, was noticing that. Any thought of scoring at this movie just goes out the window. Maybe as soon as I realize that, gone. And it doesn't matter how attractive Kim Basinger is in this movie, and she is. Mm -hmm. 
It's a very chaste movie, though. We don't really see anything, even though it's implied that he is with her for a while. The most scandalous thing you see is her in the enormous fur coat that she drops around her calves. Right. And he has unprotected sex with his girlfriend when they're very young, which would have been pretty immoral in the part of the world they were from, the Midwest, to be doing that. That's right. So how'd you like Rally Cap? It did help me rally through this Mm. podcast, Ryan. I think it was a fun episode, actually. (laughs) It's a long one, but a fun one. The other approach they could have taken with Roy's character, the tragic demise of his father as a young man that he witnessed, rather than turn to baseball as a way to reconcile his feelings and his lost relationship with his dad, he could have taken a different and darker route. Sought vengeance either against nature, become a lumberjack and just taking down all trees, imagining the thunderstorm as a representation of his father's passing, because that's kind of what's implied in this movie. After he dies, you see the thunderstorm that breaks the tree. So him shaking his fist at the heavens and saying, Curse you, rain and God, I will smite thee. And I'm going to make a lot of bats now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he can take on the persona of something that strikes fear into weather patterns everywhere, right? He took my birds. I'm going to get back at you. Is it an umbrella? He becomes Umbrella Man and he's going to be the foe of all rain everywhere he always? He Louisville Slugger, that guy. He becomes <laughs> the guy that makes the bats instead of him. My name is Slugger. Louisville Slugger. <laughs> and he gets into aluminum later on down the road and makes a trillion dollars. And he is not the world's greatest detective, but rather the world's greatest bat boner? <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't he know. did bone the bat. He boned the bat, but... Da, 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 da. And I guess you ask, could you score this movie? And while I personally say no, I suppose if you're into boning, then this is the movie for you. Yes, he doesn't mean it the way that we think he means it. Yeah, but we can pretend he does. All right, well, this is July 11th when we release this podcast. The All-Star Games just ended, and the regular season will resume tonight. And if you're like us, your favorite team was out of it in May, that would be the Blue Jays. And you can root for somebody like, I don't know, Mike Trout. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. I had to do it one more time. Thank you, Bret Hart. All right, so we're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're on Top100Project.com. Obviously, we are Top100Project on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts, of course. By the way, I'm going to have to keep mentioning this for a little while, I think, on the podcast with you and with Bev. A lot of episodes lately that Bev and I have done, maybe not so much you and I, have not had bad language. And I put the thing through as clean, and yet shows up when I download it on my own phone as E, so as if we're swearing. And we haven't been a lot lately in a lot of episodes. So there was a guy who criticized us for swearing, wanted to listen to the podcast with his daughter. And I'm telling you, you can, if you haven't, go back to things like Up and I think Spider-Man 2. We did not swear, even though your phone may suggest we did. I should probably try to clean up my language a little bit. Well, we can swear, but we just didn't in those ones, and they were lying to us on the phone. I get so impassioned about often bad sports movies, Ryan, I just can't control myself. This movie was not the fucking best there is, the (laughs) fucking best there was, or the fucking best there ever will be. And you guaranteed (laughs) the E label right there. We already had it anyway. Yeah, that's fair. All right, so take her easy, dudes, and Bret Hart and Ted Williams and Roy Hobbs, you besties. We know that you will.